So last week we looked at Acts chapter 13 as the intentionality of the first missionary journey gets really going with a head of steam. And it makes its way through Cyprus and then comes out on the other side of Cyprus. Let me show you on a map here uh, kind of how, how all of this went. So chapters 13 and 14 are the first missionary journey. As I mentioned before, all of the missionary efforts that went on before were all scattershot and based on a reaction to persecution. Through the persecution, people scattered, and as they scattered, they, they, they end up in far-flung places, and while they're there, they're disciples, no matter where they go, no matter what the conditions, and they bring the gospel message and the gospel spread. But now begins intentional, deliberate expansion of the gospel with a depth of conviction and understanding that everyone now needs to hear about Jesus. And so now it becomes much more coordinated and encouraging, coordinated by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul ventures out from Antioch with Barnabas to Cyprus, make their way through Cyprus. We already studied that. And then they head up out the other back end of Cyprus up into this Asia Minor area there. Let me uh, bring that in a little bit. To, uh, into Asia Minor, where, again, we, we read in the text that they landed in Perga, made their way up to Pisidium Antioch. Pisidium Antioch is where we left them last week. Paul preached a brilliant message. As a matter of fact, Luke, I think, captures it in great detail to show us what a marvelous orator Paul really was, what a rhetorician, because he actually uses classic rhetoric techniques. That just means that he knew the great public speaking flourish and style of the Greeks while preaching an intensely Jewish message with massive insight into the Jewish texts as well. He's able to kind of do a, do a mashup of, of both of those insights to be able to bring the message to a crowd that is now understanding Judaism in the synagogue, but very much influenced by the Greco-Roman society around them. And you see that Paul's able to be agile and bring it no matter what the crowd is, as, as, he, as he does so in Pisidium Antioch in the in the synagogue. At the end of his time, sharing about the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus that he emphasizes again and again at the end of his sermon there, the first sermon in Antioch, the whole crowd comes together, both Jews and in that synagogue are Greek Gentiles who have really embraced Judaism. They've already embraced it. And now they realize the fulfillment of Judaism. They realize the fulfillment is in Jesus and in this crazy concept of him resurrecting, which brings about a resurrection for all creation and us as well. And, and then they beg him, come back next week. Please come back next week. And that's where we pick it up now. So here in verse, uh, here in verse 43, when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. And so the good news has been brought. And then on the next Sabbath day, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Suddenly the synagogue is no longer just a gathering place for a kind of a small cloistered group of Jews and Greeks that kind of were nerding out on the Hebrew scriptures. Suddenly now it becomes public space standing room only, spilling out into the streets with all of Pisidium Antioch coming to hear of this great news that has been brought to their ears. 
When the crowd, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Now, the, the word jealousy there is also the word that is, is described of Paul quite often when he has zeal for the gospel. To be zealous or jealous is really the same word in this language, and the translators decided to take the route of jealous here in the NIV, but many have actually argued that zealous might be a better idea here, that they were zealous because they wanted to make sure that Judaism was protected and that the path to Jesus in their mind would be first through Judaism and then to Jesus, not just straight to Jesus. And they were so adamant about that, that in their zeal, they began to entrench themselves in their position. So again, when, the crowd, when they saw the crowds, they were filled with zeal and they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Again, original languages, they just blasphemed him. They, they basically were doing a teardown of the man that was preaching the message to try to undermine what it was that he was saying because here he is, a knowledgeable, really a professor of Judaism coming to them and undercutting Judaism and actually heading straight to Jesus. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. I love that. As soon as the heat comes their way, Paul and Barnabas rise up with even greater courage and boldness. And they said, we had to speak the word of God to you first. That is to the Jewish synagogue. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Uh, the ESV translates this, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And that's probably a bit closer to the actual wording is that they, by arguing this case so vehemently with such zeal, were actually arguing the case that, you know what? I should be judged unworthy of the good news of the gospel. I should be judged to be precluded from all of the beauty and benefits, even eternal life that the gospel brings through Jesus and his resurrection. Verse 47, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul there reminding them, we Jews always had a bigger calling. We always had a bigger purpose. When God spread the nations at Babel and disregarded them, but yet chose Abraham, he wasn't writing off the Gentiles. He wasn't writing them off. In Genesis 12, the very beginning of the story of God and man, there in the very beginning, he had said to Abraham, you will be a blessing and you will be blessed. But as you are blessed, you will then be a blessing to the nations or to the Gentiles. It was always God's plan as things were going haywire, as rejection abounded, as evil permeated all of society that God, through his wisdom, decided, let me have a particular people through Abraham, through whom I can work, through whom I will bless, and they will become a light, a city on a hill, a beacon for others to know what it looks like to have a righteous relationship with Yahweh. 
And so he did and protected Israel all through the exodus, through the slavery, into the exodus, all through the generations to bring them to this very point so that they could be a gathering for all of the nations again. And it's happening now. God's big plan is now seeing its fulfillment. And again, Paul is trying to remind the Jews, don't be jealous that they're coming in. This is the greatness of our calling from the beginning of time was to be that rally place for even all the nations of uh, under the earth, not just Jews. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. That's a cool phrase there. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Up until this point, the Jews all recognized, well, we were chosen. Abraham was chosen. Others were disregarded and we were the ones appointed by God for this special relationship. And now the special relationship is expanded, not just to the Jews, but to Gentiles as well. Thus it can be said that even they were appointed to eternal life. And it's a good thing because that's all of us. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. I I showed you on the map there. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing. Who are these God-fearing women of high standing? Why are they referred to as that way? Whenever you see God-fearer or God-fearing in the book of Acts, it's always referring to Gentiles, non-Jews, who hang out in the synagogue and have gone really deeply into an embrace of Yahweh and the Bible, the, the Old Testament. So these women were Greeks. They were not Jews. They were Greeks, but they hung with the Jews in the synagogue and they learned about about God through their scriptures. Now, these these Greek God-fearers in the synagogue became allies with the Jews that were angry about Paul. And they also had deep connections because they were married to the to the, you know, the city council, basically, to the leading men of the city. And so they used their influence, having been influenced by the Jews in the synagogue, they used their influence to go and exact persecution against the Christians. All right, so we've got a lot of different groups floating around here. And I'm going to just remind you of them one more time. You've got Jews in the synagogue. The, the Jewish synagogue was planted there in Pisidium Antioch. Now, as the Jews continued to learn about God and worship him and and develop, Greeks in the area started to notice about this group. Over time, the Greeks started kind of hanging around the synagogue and learning more about the the Hebrew Bible, uh, which was translated into Greek so they could understand it. So now the, the, the Gentile Greeks are hanging around the Jewish synagogue and they decide, this is what I want to follow. And so as they begin to follow it, they are called God-fearers. So it's the non-Jews in the synagogue that are real zealous for the word of of the Lord as well. And then, on top of that, you've got Christians who come into town. The Christians come into town, and they bring the good news to the Jews, to the God-fearing Gentiles. Goes well at first, but then as it seems to explode, and it's Gentile city getting ready to come into a covenant with God, the Jews get concerned because they're coming straight to Yahweh without first going through Hebrew channels, without first going through Judaism channels. 
I know it's kind of confusing. Teens, are you anywhere like hanging with this? We're moving along though, nonetheless. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So, what did Paul and Barnabas do? They shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them, we'll explain what that means a bit more, and went to Iconium, up the road. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. All right, so the title of the sermon today is The Gospel Divides. The Gospel lands in Pisidium Antioch. And as it lands there, at first it seems like it's going to have an enthralling impact and everybody's just going to kind of come together in unity before the Gospel. But Jesus even promises us that the Gospel is going to actually bring about deeper division than you had ever imagined. It's not that easy to really deny yourself and make Jesus Lord of your life. And as this is happening in Pisidium Antioch, the divide begins. And the divide actually falls along the lines that will now really be a harbinger of the rest of the book of Acts of Jews that are trying to maintain the path to Jesus through Judaism rather than just to Jesus and the rest who, who end up embracing it. So those that, that's the, the, the gospel divide that occurs here. And my first point is when the gospel isn't good or when good news isn't good. I mean, it sounds like a contradiction. It's good news. Like, guess what? Here's the great news. You've lived your lives for yourself. You know the frustration of living your lives for yourself. You've tried at different times to be able to break the cycle of absolute futility and never have. But I've got good news for you. God has watched you all along the way. And he watches you and he hears and he cares. And he has made provision for you. Not in some small way, or you go weak in the knees when you realize what God has done. He sent his son. He sent his son, having observed our rebellion against him, our futile, frustrating rebellion against him, sent his son to bear all of our folly, all of our lusts, all of our pride, even all of our weaknesses and illnesses to bear all of that so that we could have real deliverance in this age and in the age to come eternal life like that's pretty good news that's really terrific but yet how is it that sometimes good news isn't good well if this good news involves change, well then, there seems to be a bit of a sticking point at times. Apparently, neuroplasticity isn't a, a trait that everyone likes to embrace. And that, yes, change is often astounding and wonderful in deliverance, but a lot of times, change also leads to a lack of control. For the case of the Jews here in Pisidium Antioch, the ones that seemed to be most opposing to the gospel that, that Paul was bringing, the message of Jesus, the one that opposed it most 
were the ones that knew the Old Testament best. It wasn't the it wasn't the Gentiles in the synagogue, it was the Jews in the synagogue. It was the people that were the experts in the Bible. Even in Jesus' ministry, it was those that were the Bible experts that were most vehemently opposed to him. Why? Why would that be the case? Why the Bible experts? Of all people, you think they would have the insight. They'd be, oh, well, of course. You know, the, the, the Jews were always going to be a light to the Gentiles. Of course, here's the fulfillment. Oh my goodness, I've been waiting for this. Here it is. Hallelujah. Praise God that my great insight is being realized. But when it is fulfilled in a way that they didn't anticipate, when it is fulfilled in such a way that they need to change what they were good at, then it's very difficult. And if you're really good at, for example, traditional Christianity, and, and suddenly your son comes home from college and says, well, my goodness, I, I, I know what it is to truly be a disciple of Jesus now. I finally understand what it means to repent. I see the significance of baptism for the forgiveness of sins and what it means to be born of water and spirit. I, I, I understand what it means to have life in the body of Christ and to live in community in the church. It's all clear now. But he comes home to a very traditional religious family that has embraced small compromises in Christianity over time that leave Christianity anemic, flaccid, toothless, clawless, not able to affect repentance, not able to bring about deliverance, only able to kind of make you feel a bit comfortable and all you can do is kind of give some, some empty affirmations on a Sunday morning about how much God loves you despite the fact that your life shows no evidence of it. Right? Well, when you get entrenched in that kind of Christianity, you begin to make pretty good arguments over time for why it's valid. And one of the most famous situations of this in world history was the absolute amazing mind-blowing insight that the earth is not the center of the solar system right and th this is a this is a model uh, of the movement of mars according to the geocentric model of the universe according to the earth being at the at the center of the solar system again if if you think that earth is at the center of the solar system and you're trying to account for the sky observations of the movement of Mars, when you're actually going around with them, they're not going around you, you gotta create some craziness. This model was, was, was also known as the Ptolemy model of the solar system because he was the one who kind of came up with these equations and these paths. Matter of fact, that's just Mars. If you try to add in the rest of it, that's the model of the solar system with the Earth at the center. For a couple of you, this is going to be a little bit earth-shattering for you. <laughs> Neither the earth nor you are the center of the solar system. I'll just, I'll just give you a moment to let that sink in. I know, right? Well, anyway, look at the intensity of that model to explain the solar system. Now, you would think that if something came along that was brilliant and elegant and change and would kind of clear up all of that mess, then you'd be like, hallelujah, finally, we've got something that doesn't make our 
models of prediction for the movement of the planets by the way, way the word planet comes from the, the Greek word for planet is planeo which means to wander because they couldn't make sense in, in their you know, look at they, they look at the wandering that goes on those are the paths of all the planets that, that go around us so again something that could make sense of it a little bit easier and in 1514 Nicholas Copernicus who I think is Lithuanian but the the, the Poland claims him too, but it's like right on the border, really. But anyway, Nicholas Copernicus uh, put, puts forth a, a model of the solar system that is a whole lot simpler, <laughs> right? And by 1543, it's it's fully published and it, it, it made popularized. It's known in all corners. But here's the craziness: it was radically resisted. You know by whom? by the people that were really good at the equations in the crazy model. Because they were so good at those equations. And here's the other part, is that for a little while there, as his model was kind of getting traction, the equations were still a little bit more accurate in the old model for predicting where things would be. And so they used that as an excuse to say that his model was thereby null and void. But nonetheless, of course, over time, it changed. Now, in, in a famous book, uh, which is called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, it was a book published back in, in 62 by a guy named Thomas Kuhn, he, he actually, in that book, popularizes the phrase paradigm shift. A paradigm shift is really just when your mind gets blown. And all the models and processes and structures that you use to make sense of something gets absolutely busted up. But he also says how hard it is to have something like that happen in your life. And, and for the scientists at this time, really what ended up happening is they had such a hard time embracing even something so elegant, so clearly advantageous, that... In a sense, the change only came after all the experts in the complicated model died. And that's often a phrase you hear today in science. Well, yes, we'll, we'll be able to have a scientific breakthrough here, but we're going to need a whole lot of physicists to die first. And, and that's, that, that is kind of a, the, 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 the raucous joke in the uh, you know, hallowed halls of academia. Uh, but, again... If that's the case in, in something that's so clearly superior, well, my goodness, we, we've got to also recognize that this is exactly what's going on in Pisidium Antioch among the Bible experts. But, but, but even among, I remember, you know, I grew up in a very traditional version of Christianity. And, and I remember people trying to bring the gospel to me and I remember my resistance to it, not because I was so good at the traditional version of Christianity, uh, but it was just that I was so good at justifying myself through the traditional version, versions of Christianity. And, and I had my argument down, and it was very comfortable, and I had peace in my soul, because I got to do what I wanted, and, and yet still justify it. I didn't have to radically change my life. I didn't have to radically be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I could just be a Christian and not have to be a radical disciple as the Bible defines it, all that was there. 
and, and, and probably there are people here that you've had the same experience. That you were like, no, oh, but, but, but this, this, is, this is so different. This is so How is it that all the people in my church don't actually hold to repentance that really does affect the absolute way that you live your life? I like the version of repentance where you just cry and say, I'm sorry, God. And get up and really don't make any big change in your life. How is it that nobody really knows that a disciple has a purpose? That you no longer live for yourself, but for him who died for you. That the disciples make disciples. That's actually their, their mission, their purpose, their core, their identity. Again, none of these, all of this was like, poof, to me. Like, what? What? The sun is the center of the solar system? What? The Bible says that? What? That's really the case? But it's, but it's tough. It's, it's really, really tough. And maybe, maybe you're here right now, and there have been a presentation of the, of the gospel that has really run up against preconceptions that you've had of how it is that you live on out church, or Jesus, or your mission, or your purpose, or what repentance is, or, or what it really looks like to seek God. Again, all of these things may be radically, radically foreign to you, but just the fact that it's foreign to you doesn't in some way make it inferior. I hope it makes it superior, just as this model was so much more superior. That I, that I hope that it, that it means that there's promise for real change, for real breakthrough. That you don't have to, as, as Thoreau said, live lives of quiet desperation. Live lives just waiting to die. Live lives trying to kind of fill your, your moments with some sort of amusement or some sort of Netflix binging, but, but rather to realize that you've got a life to live, you've got a purpose to engage in, that the gospel is astounding. And just as Paul was trying to get the Jews to reclaim and restore the depth of their charge, so I think today we've got to do the same thing just with Christianity. Because there's a version of Christianity that is so different from what we see as we read the book of Acts. And it's so different that it makes it so difficult to have the paradigm shift. But here's the beauty, though. In this case, God provides the Holy Spirit to help bring about conviction and inspiration, as well as Scripture to bring about conviction and inspiration, as well as people's lives to be able to do all of that so that the paradigm shift can really be the case. And that you don't have to end up like these sad souls uh, that, that we see here. And speaking of which, my second point is prosecuting yourself. Because that's what they did here. Paul says, as, as they argue vehemently with zeal against the gospel, Paul says, you know what you're doing? You're actually successfully arguing the case that you should have a judgment levied against you that says you are unworthy for eternal life. Good job. You effectively argued the case. You, you actually were co-prosecutor with Satan against you in this matter and, and brought, it, brought it to bear. I, I think we've got to take some real caution from this that when, when these Jews 
decided that they knew best based on tradition rather than based on what God was trying to pierce through and bring to their lives. And by rejecting that and rejecting the messenger and de denigrating all of those things, they were not pronouncing judgment on Paul. They were pronouncing judgment on themselves. Even for us in our Christianity, do you ever have that temptation to attack the messenger because they're bringing something that you really need to hear? Because they're bringing something that's going to affect breakthrough radical change in your life? Well, be careful because in arguing the case against that messenger, you might be arguing the case against yourself and the depth to which you, you really are against what it is that God wants for you. And, and it's in that case where Jesus says, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town, shake the dust off your feet. That's one thing. But then look at what he says right after that. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. Sodom and Gomorrah? What in the world? I mean, that's pretty deep. That's pretty bad. And for us, we, the, the reason Jesus says that about Capernaum and Bethsaida, those are the towns that he was referencing here, is because they had every advantage. They got to see Jesus. They got to see the work of the gospel. They got to have an upfront, up-close interaction with God and his intent for their life. So do we. It's our lives. We have every advantage. We have the gospel. We've got diagrams of the gospel. We've got commentaries on the gospel. We've got an army of advisors that can help us that really are selflessly trying to follow the gospel. We've got all of that. And as, as Proverbs 29 says, whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. That's actually kind of what it means to shake the dust off. To shake the dust off is to say that we are done. We are done with you. And there is not another chance. The fifth and sixth chances that have just come your way have just been, it's a frightening idea. But my goodness, for us, God forbid that if we ever remain stiff-necked, that is, remain resistant, remain proud, after many efforts to be reached, to be helped, to be guided to the breakthrough, well, then we will suddenly be destroyed and without remedy. This is heavy stuff that's, that's happening here because the gospel does divide. And if you're going to have a zeal that you want to unleash in some way, my goodness, maybe think about unleashing that zeal towards personal humility. So can I just kind of conjure up all of the passion and enthusiasm that I have for all things godly to embrace a godly humility right now rather than to try to get into a he said, she said with a person that's trying to in some way help me on my spiritual progress right now. And then finally, this is interesting, isn't it? The persecutors in the synagogue have connections. Their connections are in the highest places of government in Pisidium Antioch. And these Antiochian officials 
join with the Jews and decide to do a shutdown, a clampdown on all things Christian, on the message of the gospel. And, and as they try with all they can to absolutely smother the message of Jesus among the Christians that are there, in, instead of being overwhelmed or frightened, instead, look what it says. I'll, I'll read again. Verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What is that in the context of? In the context of they stirred up persecution against them. So much so that they even kicked Paul and, and uh, Barnabas out of the region. Expelled them out of the region. So suddenly your, your spiritual mentors have been kicked out. It's just you that are left. Persecution is flaring. It's not just persecution in the marketplace of ideas. Jew versus Greek versus Christian. It's not even that. It's now the government as well, all against you. And what's the response of Holy Spirit-filled Christians? Bring it on! This is what I signed up for! I didn't come to Christ to live my life in the corner of a Starbucks contemplating psalms that are going to enrich the peacefulness of, of, of my moment here? That's not... I mean, yes, that's a, a nice byproduct, but I came to get it on. To get it on for Jesus. To be able to be part of the mission and the, and the message of Jesus. My life is going to count for something. And I love what Jesus says. Not only are you getting eternal life, but in this present age, you get a hundred times as much. You get life to the full. You, you get la dolce vita. You get the sweet life. Oh, and he says, you know, you know how like Columbo at the end, he's like, oh yeah, and one more thing. What was, what was that other thing? Oh yeah. And with all of that, persecutions. And this is what these guys got. When, when Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, in that day, when they persecute you, leap for joy. Who does that? I know I, I've been I've, I've been a, a campus minister here, and we've been kicked off of ODU because we were you know, kind of too assertive in, in bringing the gospel message. They they want us to sit behind a table and just wait till people come by and just to politely say, "Would you like to know more about Jesus?" And we walked out from the table and we're like, "Hey, would you like to know more about Jesus?" We're you know we, we have Bible studies, we have insights, we have to be able to help you. It goes right from the Bible, the Bible alone. So, you know, because we kind of didn't abide by the sit behind the table and allowed the gospel to in a sense be restrained, we 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 faced it. Two different times. And I'm not, each of those times I wasn't like, yes, this is so awesome. No, I remember being like, oh, oh, we're kicked off of campus again. <laughs> oh, we ever, you know, we're getting back, you know, it made it harder to meet in the, in the rooms and campus, etc. But you, you know, you know what? As, as much as I had agony over it, I go back to the students, right? They've been Christians for, you know, all of like seven to t 15 months. And I'm like, we got kicked off. We can't meet on campus. They're like, yeah! That's right! Because we're bringing it! We're bringing it! They don't realize that, that this is like unfiltered Christianity. This is the way that you're supposed to live your life. Let's go! Let's bring We don't need no stinking rooms for our message. 
we can just bring it wherever we go. And, and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm so shamed by these like, you know, 18, 19 year olds that have embraced Christianity and you know, just, just love Jesus with all their hearts. But I think for, for, for all of us, we're a little bit too far from the fight. We don't know this kind of joy. We're looking to manufacture joy in secular affirmation, in secular amusements, rather than knowing the joy that comes from being in absolute alignment and in the real struggle of helping people without backing down, with the boldness that disciples have. Again, not to be obnoxious. No, never that. We love, we care, we desire to do only what is effective, but we don't shrink back. But even when you are as sensitive as possible, as caring and as insightful as possible, when you start to make a difference in your neighborhood, in your workplace, among your family, but when that starts to happen, watch for the blowback and it's going to come. But when it does, then you realize time to be in the game, time to be who we were always meant to be for Christ. It'll be difficult if it were only you, but the Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit is looking to use you to be able to affect change even more broadly than what has occurred even in your own life and heart. Praise God. Final note, just so that we don't ever, ever become kind of, I don't know, calcified in our hearts, in our ongoing maturity in Christianity. Just like the Jews became there in Pisidium Antioch or you know, expert scientists might become. Let me give this final charge. You've got zeal. Apply that zeal to your own humility. Apply that energy, that passion, that effort, that focus. Apply that to personal humility or change that comes from the gospel. Uh, amen.